Hello, ladies, gentlemen, and otherwise, and welcome to what is sure to be the most state-sponsored, star-spangled, red-blooded episode of the Daily Brain Bleed to date. My name is Jeff. And my name's Tucker, and once more, I come to the studio bearing gifts. You see, not only have I brought another special variety of Oreos, which I've been known to do from time to time, but I have also brought a new special patriotic variety of Pepsi. And so let's go into the Oreos first. These Oreos are um, called S'mores Oreos because they have a theoretically graham cracker flavored uh, cookie and both chocolate and marshmallow flavored cream inside. Um... And really, it's just it's the it's the missed hit of the world that they didn't call them smorios. I am you know I think that there's probably some other subsidiary off brand of Oreos that maybe already grabbed smorios, but you'd think that they could knock the you know the new kid off the block and just get it for the for the bit, right? But you know, honestly, I think the reason they truly didn't go with it is because smorios is actually a descriptor for a for an obscene sex act that we will not go into detail describing. Yeah, you have a smartphone, you have Urban Dictionary, figure it out, get a smorio, and then come talk to us. You know, this but, uh, is a family podcast, and right now we're gonna have the ASMR of opening this thing up. Oh yeah, can you hear that, audience? You like that shit, don't you? I bet you do. Uh, this is a family podcast we said earlier. Okay, cool. Great. So here we go. I can see chocolate and uh, regular cream on the inside, and it is golden. So here we go. Um. Oh, that slaps. Oh, God. It's good. It's so good. It's good. I, I don't know if it necessarily screams s'mores to me. You know, it's just a nice flavored cookie. It's it, at the very beginning, it, it because it looks like a golden Oreo, you think, oh, yeah, it's just going to taste like a golden Oreo. But you definitely get hints of graham cracker in there. The chocolate it's just absolutely overpowered by the marshmallow. The, the chocolate flavoring. is buried, but you do get graham cracker and marshmallow. And in my opinion... That is enough to constitute a s'more. When you taste those two things together, you know what you're getting. Yeah, no, this is actually surprising. Yeah, those good. are really good. I'm going to be struggling to get through this podcast and not, like, continue eating all of them in the package. Nabisco, my guys, how come you are not sponsoring this podcast? We have done so many different Oreos on this, and this is the best one yet. This yeah, is- no, for sure. Well, this see, this one led flavor first. The point of the Oreo was the flavor experience, not the branding, not the little thing on the sides. It's just, it's supposed to taste like a s'more, and you know what? You guys knocked it out of the park. Again, uh, please sponsor us, Nabisco. Um, there cannot be a long line of people <laughs> just vying for the <laughs> for the support of Nabisco vis-a-vis a podcast. So, you know, hit us up. Speaking of massive food conglomerates, Pepsi, your turn. Now, okay, so this is Pepsi Blue. Um, I guess this is supposed to be patriotic theme because there is an American flag design at the front. But, you know, Pepsi's already blue and it's kind of... Um, it's already branding. the Obama logo, but kind of more or less. But the point is it's it's bl- the, the soda itself is blue and it's... um. Theoretically, berry flavored. Yeah, I I hypothesize that walking around with this in a downtown area, people would look at you funny because it looks like you're carrying a bottle of Windex and drinking it. So that gives you an idea about the contents. I'm going to do some ASMR right here on the open. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. To quote Kronk, it's all coming together. This is the real reason I started a podcast was to open soda bottles in front of microphones. <laughs> all right, here we go. Let's get a... Okay. It smells like berry. The smell profile, yeah, it's definitely you're getting some. Well, it smells there. like chemical berries. Cheers. Good God, that is sweet. Yeah, um, you know, I didn't expect it. So, so it's blue. I didn't expect it to taste as much kind of like garden variety Pepsi as it does. Like you get the berry, but you also get a very strong amount of just this is Pepsi. <laughs> Not only is it this is Pepsi, this is like the sweetest variety of Pepsi. I think the bigger change is not even. Yeah, there is a little bit of berry flavoring, but it just it feels like 
a Pepsi can and a Bang energy drink had a child. They just ran at each other full force. Yeah, this is what that is. And and I, to be completely fair, the mouthfeel afterwards, you do get more of that berry on the back of your tongue. But it's definitely not like a forefront. You take a sip and it's like a fago. You know what I mean? Like you're not getting that. Yeah. And the problem um, is, I, I don't know. I have a hard time saying thinking that I can like objectively judge this because I still definitely right now sitting here, I still definitely have way more of that Oreo taste in my mouth. You know? Well, I mean, I'm going to be real. The Oreos slap. Like, I just ate another one because I can't stop, <laughs> and I'm an animal. But they're really good, like, genuinely. Get you a get you a box of these things. Oh, yeah. These things, the Oreos, hard recommend. The Berry Pepsi, it's fine. I mean, you know. Take a mix. I mean, I mean, take a miss. You could use it as a mixer or something, but, like, given how much sugar is in this thing and how good it is, like, it has to be really good to warrant the sugar trade-off, and I don't think it quite does. And, you know, honestly, if you're at the store and you can't really decide and you just want to try something different, I'd go for this, but I would not go out of my way to. Yeah, no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not finding the good gas station so I can get a Pepsi blue. <laughs> um, but, you know, as we enjoy some of our, our Oreos. I'm so sorry. Can I have an aside very briefly about the best Pepsi I've ever had in my entire life? Go off, King. So when I was in Spain, specifically a small hill town in Spain called Buñol. Mm hmm. Um, we would go to this little bar kind of thing in the middle of the day because there's nothing else to do. And, you know, we weren't trying to like drink beer and stuff at like 11 a.m. And so we would just get like a Pepsi or something and they put it in a glass with like a little lemon wedge and everything. And two things. One, European sodas taste different than American sodas. And so it was just it was a slightly different flavor profile. And two, the lemon wedge elevates a glass of soda in a way that I cannot explain. And having it served to you across a bar in a cold glass by a Spanish gentleman is just it's really something you should experience before you die. You know, this seems like mostly about the experiences as opposed to any like inherent traits of the soda, which again, I can get behind the, uh, the only time I've been to a foreign country in the last 10 years was going up to Toronto a few summers ago. And all I got there was regret. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, We've been listening to LCD sound system all day before we turned on the pod. Oh, yeah. I brought so. it up last time on the podcast, and we haven't been able to get it out of our heads just this whole time. It's just nonstop. Um, mm -hmm. So, anywho, uh, now, please, your eloquent segue about America. Well, this actually isn't so much about America as it is uh, China. Specifically, there is an article in Variety with the headline, Marvel's Shang-Chi Eternals may face uphill battle to enter China. Now, I find this to be interesting because... I mean, so did the Mongols, am I right? Oh. <laughs> well, I, I mean, they got there. I mean, they, they, they did, but it was uphill, I guess. I don't know. Um, I guess it was. You know, Mo Mongolia is a flat country, and you're going into China. It's more mountainous, so th this is not wrong, what you said, so point for you i'll take it uh, so but no we've talked about um shang chi and the eternals um and the hype coming up for them specifically because uh chloe Zhao won the oscar for best director for nomadland uh so a lot and because eternals was the next movie on her slate a lot of people were really hyped for that but the chinese government is a bit miffed at her Right now, see, you actually go into the article itself and it kind of give you gives you some vague reasoning as to why specifically Eternals is uh, kind of on the Chinese government's shit list. And to be clear, what's happening right now is a state media outlet gave a list of all the foreign films, foreign from the Chinese perspective, that have been approved for release in the country throughout 2021. And Shang-Chi and The Eternals are conspicuously absent. And most commentators, like, there's some speculation that maybe Eternals has some LGBT content that the Chinese government would not be down with, but honestly, they could probably edit that out. What it really is, is it was resurfaced recently that... The director has made, who herself is a first-generation immigrant from China, she's made some um, critical comments of the Chinese government in the past. They were in passing in interviews, but they're there, and now that they've gotten some wide attention, they can't have that. They can't have that in Beijing. They do not want any kind of dissent. Well, you know, I mean, when it comes down to it, people make movies, and those movies go places in theaters 
I'm sorry, I took another hit of that Pepsi, and I'm pretty sure it just corroded the inside of my skull. I feel like I did a whip it. This is more like I was I was listening to you, and I was actually kind of amazed. You were by the content it was going to go somewhere. I I I I I wasn't expecting that. Uh, Nobody expects it. I'm not exactly upset. I think you're adding a dimension here that uh, I'd like to hear out. Um, Yeah, uh, I just. All I can do is move on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, on, I mean, like it, to to go back inside of it. I think, you know, realistically, that's a line that people are going to have to toe. And you know, we've already kind of been subject to kissing the ring a little bit in terms of like dealing with the Chinese box and everything. And you know, I think that you know we've done a lot of renegotiating and kind of figuring out how to make things more palatable to them. And so I'm, if, I'm sure that if this is a hard stance because Marvel does not want to piss away several hundred million dollars, they will find a way to make it happen. But it is interesting that this time it's both content related possibly, but also, you know, having to do with uh, political stances of someone involved with the film. So that's a little dicier. Sure. And I get the sense, and I hope I'm not out of pocket here, but I get the sense that, the specific it a bunch of especially Chinese folks on social media are specifically offended at the thought of like a Chinese American woman criticizing the Chinese government. It seems like almost worse to them if like, you know, a generic white American had made substantially the same comments. Right. Because um, the the perception that China does not have um, universal support among all ethnic Chinese people in the world is a notion that I think the Chinese government really wants to quesh, quell. And um, honestly, they're kind of feeding into their own like weird dual loyalty trope because, you know, there are a lot of people in the United States who secretly suspect that, you know, all immigrants are secretly loyal to the country, to their like, homeland. Or right. Whatever, yeah. You know, which is very much not the case. And in fact, many people left their homeland specifically because they do not like the culture or the politics or whatever. Yeah. Right. But- I mean, this also brings to mind, like I've heard several, um, I mean, I say several, I follow someone who is like, you know, uh, who is raised Jewish and I don't know if she's still practicing, but um, she made some very critical comments about like um, some of the Israel-Palestine stuff that's been going on recently. Mm-hmm. And it's just, you know, again, so anytime that you speak out against what Israel's doing, especially if you are a Jew or Jewish in heritage or anything like that, you know, there's a certain level of scrutiny that is immediately applied to those comments. And, you know, whereas, a, you know, if you're just generic white guy says something about Israel, you know, it's different. But... Right. Yeah. And, and no, it, it gets actually worse when you get to Shang-Chi. Because oh, it does. Sure. This is OK. So it's a film um, about, you know, a guy. A, a wow. Chi- that narrows it down. <laughs> a, chi- <laughs> a Chinese American fellow who grows up, you know, here in the States. And his father is a secret wizard slash criminal mastermind back in China. And through a series of events, they are going to meet in a giant fighting tournament. I think that sounds awesome. I can't wait to see that. The trailer was really good. It was solid. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was. I remember watching this with you right after we saw um, Mortal Kombat. Mortal Kombat. It was way better than Mortal Kombat already. The trailer was better than Mortal Kombat. Sure. But um, so the thing is, though, a bunch of Chinese folks on social media have taken offense to the movie as it exists, or at least as it's portrayed. And some of it, you know, it feels like a stretch, they said, because, oh, because Shang-Chi's father at one point in the comics was the caricatured villain uh, Fu Manchu. There's a problem with that. I think it's maybe more because, reading between the lines, it's more because they don't like the optics of a Chinese guy moving to the United States even when he was young and growing up as, you know, basically an American and implicitly rejecting the tradition of his father, who is a bad guy, explicitly portrayed in the film. Um, That's kind of going to touch some cultural 
hot buttons that they don't want to touch. But well, but the thing is, like, you're you're allowed to choose how much of your heritage you want to interact with. And again, you know, again, so like, I'm not like a first or second or even you know third generation immigrant. But like, you know, I I feel like I've seen in media portrayed and watched other people going through that struggle of like, you know, how much of my heritage do I actually identify with? You know, like I grew up in Kansas. What do I know about? this mm-hmm. or that. And so, you know, I think that that's at least at least at the very least not completely racially colorblind like tone deaf, you know? And it gets even worse because a bunch of people <laughs> have been going on social media, uh, folks living in China, uh complaining about how the stars of the film Simu Liu, who portrays Shang-Chi and Aquafina as the supporting character, um th- they they're mad that they're in their words, not mine, that they think that these characters are too ugly to star in a feature film, and not only that, have too uh, prominently uh, placed stereotypically Asian features. Like, I'm just reading this straight from the article. This is a quote from someone on a Chinese social uh, media service, Weibo. They said, and I quote, this isn't me, Foreigners just love to deliberately cast Asian actors with squinty eyes. There are many actors in China and Asia with big eyes and prominent features, which is like, that's the kind of shit that you like is almost like comically over the top racist that you would hear from like some white kid here in the States. So it's jarring when you hear it, you know, coming from it's the horseshoe baby. It's, it is the horse. I, I was talking about this, um, with my sister and she kind of described it as, Oh, this is internalized racism. And it's a bit more complicated than that in the sense that, um, People like to blame kind of Western beauty standards for this preference you'll see in some culture for cultures for light skin, straight noses, that sort of thing. But it actually goes back thousands of years, well before um, Europe's dominance across the world. You see, uh, chi- the chi- cauldron of the Chinese civilization was in Northeast Asia, and it eventually expanded south and in the Northeast uh, of Asia. You have a lot of people with light skin. So even though they later conquered a bunch of people who are darker skinned, it's kind of that ideal that's still perpetuated as the um, pinnacle of beauty. And it's kind of also like in India, right, where the native Dravidian peoples were conquered by the Aryan peoples coming down from the steppe 3000 years ago. And for that reason, you see a lot of preference in Indian culture for people with fair skin, all the Bollywood stars that you'll see in these movies. They look like they could come from the Mediterranean, right? Very light skinned. And you'll see someone, you know, average Joe Indian, probably substantially more dark. And it's a bit too convenient in my mind to blame it on Western beauty standards. It's something I think has been working for a couple thousand years now. Yeah. And I mean, it's it's also okay to say, you know, there are multiple competing influences that are affected by generational and cultural context, you know. So, Mm -hmm. like, for example, you had like, you know, ideas and attitudes towards British colonialists. You had a lot of people in India at one point who were like, honestly, I I miss the regime. You know, I, I miss that. It was better when they were here. And then you have a lot of people, obviously, who are like, you know, Indian independence. And that's one of those things where it's like, you know, you can you can interpret that a lot of different ways. But if you're missing the context and the generational information there, there's not you know, you can't just make these kind of clear cut revisionist decisions with how you interpret it. But whatever the context is, if this boils down in action to trying to bully an actor for looking... Because they look a certain way? That's literally... No, no. And and this is depressing to me. It really is depressing to me, this idea that it's almost worse in my mind um, than just, you know censoring these movies for political reasons because you could theoretically get around that by just not having a movie that has anything to do with the Chinese government or anything but if it's going to be this petty stuff that Hollywood studios have to kowtow to in the near future I, I it's it's going to make it even more difficult to be watched and I and it's and you know again I hope I'm not out of pocket but I have to imagine that this is going to make it even more frustrating for Asian Americans, this was a movie, Shang-Chi. It's one of these movies that was primarily intended to play in China, but I think a big reason why it got greenlit was because um, Crazy Rich Asians did so well a couple years ago. They saw that there was a... Great film, by the way. Loved it. It was a good movie, but for that reason, they saw that there was a huge market 
in the West and in America specifically for content about Asian Americans and Asian Americans grappling with their identity, right? And I think that's, on some level, obviously, there's a big difference between a drama film like that and a superhero movie like Shang-Chi, but it's... um, It'll be depressing if that kind of cultural nuance being explored in film gets steamrolled by the Chinese government coming in and saying, nope, you can only portray anyone of Chinese descent in a very specific sort of context, and we aren't going to let you do it any other way. That's, that's... And then also you need to make your Chinese actors look more white because that's less racist <laughs> is a weird line of argument in my opinion. I, yeah, it's um, um, and it's you know whatever. Okay, um, it's I could I could sit here and be mad about all of the various facets of this all day, but I think the thing that I will just say to you know summarize my bitching is basically that, you know, if you want to dislike something, you can twist and turn any sentence or any argument that you want to fit your point. And so, you know, seeing that type of take get expressed by someone is, you know, ultimately shitty, but not surprising in the least. Right. So, you know, right. it's, it, it is what it is. And that's why when you have these discourses about these sensitive topics, you have to have a little bit of that back and forth and a little bit of, you know, okay, well, why do we actually think that? Where does that come from? But yes, um, the film that we actually watched for this week, though, it's not a new film. It's not an upcoming film. It is, but it is another Disney film. One that came back, came out all the way back in the 1950s. Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier. And boy, howdy, what a humdinger of a film this was. Um, while watching it, um, the the first observation that I thought was funny was I texted you and I was like. Um, I think that writing wise, this movie reminds me of three, you know, like several different TV episodes that just kind of got stitched together. And apparently that's what happened. Yeah, right? that's literally the case. It's um, it was a movie. It was originally came out as I don't think the term existed as such at the time because television was so new, but it was essentially a miniseries. Right. Uh, Disney produced these three lightly connected installments of, you know, various episodes in Davy Crockett's life and released them over the course of about of a, a year. But it launched this gigantic uh, Davy Crockett cultural phenomenon in the United States in the 1950s. You had a bunch of people going around dressing as Davy Crockett, all that kind of thing. It was like a superhero movie of the day. So they decided to capitalize on it by kind of lightly editing together the three episodes and releasing it as a theatrical film. And yes, it does have a very... Uh, episodic flavor you know it there are three distinct stories that it looks to tell and it does that and it, it does in fact tell three different stories um so how what uh what angle were you looking to hit this thing from well we can look at it from a variety of different angles and um for anyone who doesn't know davy crockett is a significant cultural figure certainly outside of the context of this film though i get the sense that it's he's maybe less so now than he was 50 years ago but certainly still going strong in appalachia you see oh yeah i knew i knew the tune of the scoring before i saw the film and i didn't know that's where it was from oh, i just grew up hearing the song and so that was very interesting for me so for anyone who doesn't know davy crockett he was a hunter, an explorer, a politician. He was elected to Congress for a while who participated in various wars, but never as part of like a regular part of the United States Army or anything, always as a volunteer. And he himself did a, played a huge role in popularizing this sentiment of, oh, volunteers going from Tennessee to go fight in various conflicts. It's eventually where you get the Tennessee Vols, right? That's ultimately in large part due to the influence of Davy Crockett, who really did become a massive, massive folk hero in no small part because he died in the last stand at the Alamo. And yeah, so uh, he's a complicated figure. I think we can talk about him as a person, but the, the, the film portrays him as basically a good guy, given the larger cultural context of the time. Obviously, the reality is a bit more complicated, but look, at least me, I'm not here to tear down any statues. I'm not here to build anyone any statues. I'm here to assess 
kind of, you know, what the character of Davy Crockett, as portrayed in the film, says not only about the early 1800s that the film depicts, but also how mid-20th century America grappled with that time period um, through this film and films like it. And you definitely do get several moments in there where you get some, like, monologue is a strong word given how they make him talk and how he chooses his words, but... Um, you do get several times where uh, Davy Crockett gives you kind of a, a peek into the writer's room philosophy of what Disney was trying to put out into the States. Um, specifically, one that I remember was when he he challenges a uh, Native American chieftain to a sort of trial by combat. With yeah, Tomahawks. man-to-man combat. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, afterwards, he, or b- before that, um, you know, the chief says, you know, you don't get to you don't get to call Indian law. Sorry. Uh, so a lot of the film uses that term for Native Americans. And so when quoting it, it was very close to the tip of the tongue. Apologies. Um, you cannot use Native American law uh, for the white man because the white man's law does not work for Native Americans. And Davy Crockett says the white man's law would work perfectly well for you if you would just give it a chance. To which, you know, obviously in informed historical context, we understand is complete BS. But it's like that gives you a real read on the temperature in terms of how Americans felt, I think. And look, as far as how the film approaches race, yes, there are problematic elements. And the problematic elements stem from the fact that he got his name fighting in various Indian wars um, east of the Mississippi. In fact, I think this is one of the very few, relatively few films that actually portrays a conflict between American settlers and um, Native American tribes east of the Mississippi. The only other one I can think of off the top of my head is um, The Last of the Mohicans, but that's an aside. Um, I think you could say it's solidly fair for its day. Like, it it doesn't hold up as, you know, probably for a variety of reasons, a good portrayal of Native American culture today. I, I did find it kind of funny remember the horror film antrim where the whole shtick with that horror movie was that it it was you know it was kind of a mockumentary that had a film within the film in between it and the shtick was that the movie itself was cursed and if you watch it you would die and before you know when it goes from the documentary portion to the film portion it has the countdown thing where it's like you've been warned, you have now 20 seconds to leave the theater before we start playing this and you can't hold us responsible. Um, This was the first Disney Plus film I saw (laughs) with like the um, disclaimer at the beginning, like we have some problematic content um, uh, that we're going to show in this movie. Uh, And it has the countdown. I was thinking like, oh, it just reminded me of Antrim. It's like, you have 10 seconds. If you watch this film, you will become racist. You will experience a racism. And, you know, again, we've talked about how that is, you know, at least in my opinion, I don't, I'm not entirely sure if you've expressed the sentiment, but that is, you know, in my opinion, the better way to handle having your old vintage and not PC content is to, you know, continue to have it, continue to stream it, but to place a disclaimer on it. So you're not denying that it happened, but you're also not just handing it out carte blanche to say, you know, okay, well here, just do with this what you will. Um, so, you know, it, but it, it was very funny. It was like, you know, you must be this tall to experience a racism. Right. Uh, um, <laughs> look, the film seems to honestly want to grapple with the fact that, um, Stealing Indian land was wrong. Like, it definitely actually comes down on that side while still redeeming most of the early American settlers, you know, on an individual level. And if you're going to have that um, story, Davy Crockett is as good a figure as any to center it around because the, the film itself... After the war is over, it portrays him going to settle down, and there's this lengthy bit where um, this uh, another settler tries to kick um, this Native American and his family off land that they legally own, and Davy Crockett, you know, comes in 
and you know he punches the he guy. Punches at, him in the face a bunch of times. <laughs> racism is over. Um, <laughs> Davy but, Crockett ended racism. And I don't know how just historically accurate that is, but um, what is historically accurate, and they portray this at like from the perspective of some kid in the audience who's just here for the action scenes. The, the probably the most boring portion would have been the stuff where he's in Congress, but it's in a lot of ways the most consequential because it does portray accurately that Davy Crockett was against um, the Indian removal bills that, you know, were presented uh, in Washington in the 1830s. He um, thought it was, you know, absolutely a betrayal kind of it, it reminds you back to that point where if you said where he said to the the chief that you know if you just let white man's law well here's the white man's law um <laughs> letting them down but you know and again this is a historically accurate thing he said and remember these um this law directly precipitated the trail of tears and he said and this is an actual quote from the man I believed it was a wicked, unjust measure. I voted against this Indian bill, and my conscience yet tells me that I gave a good, honest vote, and one that I believe will not make me ashamed in the day of judgment. And to be clear, this was a guy living in what was still relatively frontier Tennessee in the 1830s. This was a politically unpopular position to have. He broke with the sitting president of the United States, and he lost his seat in no part because of that. So... I also want to point out how much more eloquent that phrasing is than any line they give him. They make him sound like an absolute country bumpkin. (laughs) Yeah. But the Um, thing is, like, he was from, like, the 19th century where everyone spoke like a novelist for no reason. mm -hmm. And so, you know, like, in that sense, I think it would be cool to actually see, like, a Davy Crockett film where they write it, you know, with him speaking how he should have. Right. Because, you know, he wasn't, like... It, It was more kind of a portrayal of, like... Appalachia as it kind of exists, uh, the popular perception of it in uh, the middle yeah. of the 20th century. And one interesting thing is that the movie definitely gives Andrew Jackson a soft pass in this film. Cause yeah, <laughs> we don't take him to task at all. I, I, Davey, his, the argument of Davy Crockett, the character in the film, when he goes up arguing against Indian removal is, Oh, um, this is bad. I think that Andrew Jackson, our good president, he's kind of being misled, right? He he wouldn't know what's going on. It's actually the land speculators who are wanting to uh, steal this land. And <clears throat> which, to be fair, go off, King. Like it, you know, but the thing is, it's like not only was that objectively wrong, that wasn't Correct. even like the actual Davy Crockett's position no. because Davy Crockett was a member of the opposing party. Uh, Andrew Jackson was an early Democrat. Davy Crockett was a Whig. In fact, the Whig party um, wanted to run him for president at various points and um, it never happened. But still, they were not political allies. They were like both from Tennessee, but that was like the extent of it. And so it was weird kind of seeing them. But I think it was kind of, again, from the perspective of the middle of 20th century, they wanted to critique these policies, but not so much the these folk these folk heroes these folk figures like andrew jackson so that was kind of the weird compromise they had to live with and i mean i was about to say since we've gotten you know markedly as the decades have gone by harder and harder on those people um you know as we continue to reinterpret and you know, grapple mm-hmm. with our history as a nation. But I mean, for any of the keyboards, keyboard warriors out there who might want to cancel Davy Crockett, just know he did the uh, right thing at a time in which it was politically unpopular. That That's not nothing, you know, or at least he tried to stop it at a time when it was politically unpopular to um, prevent this thing. Yeah, so, so I mean, like, we don't have to worship him as a woke king, but we also don't need to be like, oh, Davy Crockett, the backwards racist hick from nowhere, because, like, that's not that's not productive to any conversation that anyone's having, mm-hmm. and it's not, you know, paying respect or understanding to the fact that this was kind of a cultural touchstone for a lot of people. And, uh, yeah, so, I mean, and we've, we've said it again and again, complex issues have complex answers that are ultimately about as satisfying as a really, really, really expensive dinner. Now, from the vantage point of early 2021, you kind of wonder, because the film doesn't feel the need to, like, explain it, because they might think it's self-explanatory from their standpoint, um, 
it doesn't really square the circle of why Davy Crockett, a fellow who fought in wars against Native Americans, would have been so against them being kicked off their land. And and I think it's part of that thing, like, they... <sighs> They want to portray America as a country where, yes, racism existed, even systemic racism existed, though they, would, though they would not have used that term. But that was always tempered for with like a um, a respect for hard work, the the principle of fair play. Right. Where <laughs> it's a, a meritocracy, a, just not for everybody. Right. Right. Where <laughs> but like for a guy who the film portrays as a relative rube like Davy Crockett, you know, it's self-evident to him that, oh, we made a deal with these guys, that they could keep their... In fact, if you were making this film today, you could probably still do Davy Crockett as a good guy, but you could lean more into the uh, idea that, you know, this guy is following a system that he honestly thinks is good, but is failing him and the people around him at every point. Can we also... Oh, sorry. Don't go ahead. Can we also just briefly talk about the uh, the interactions that happen in the third segment with the Alamo where they find the Native American gentleman out in Texas Mm -hmm. and they cannot speak to him. And so they use very bad reductive hand gestures and he moves more or less like Quasimodo. Um, the the film was pretty decent about not doing really, really awful portrayals until that one. That one was rough. Well, I think that a large part of it was, and I suspected just from watching it and then I watched and confirmed, the at the beginning, the Native Americans in the film were portrayed by actual Native Americans, I think maybe actual members of the Cherokee Nation or something who were living in North Carolina at the time. Or at least the extras, the actor himself who portrayed the chief was from Oklahoma. But the actor portraying the Comanche in the last third, he was like definitely just like an Italian guy who they put in yeah, red face. Yeah, no, and it was like, and it was uncomfy. It was very uh, uncomfy. Yeah, but I. Hey, points for the authenticity for hiring, you know, a bunch of actual native actors at the beginning. It, it kind of gives lie to the fact that, you know, this was originally a miniseries that was kind of stitched together because they had the resources for this, I guess, at the beginning, but not by the not time so much at the, the end, third yeah. episode. Um, <laughs> oh, but speaking of the beginning and how they shot it, some pretty they actually shot it in East Tennessee and more than most films that are nominally set in this area. It was a pretty gorgeous portrayal of the mountains of East Tennessee. Like, yeah, no, they really uh, especially for, you know, again, given the time and the technology that was available to them, like watching it felt like a, a startling amount like the drives that I've taken through, like, you know, kind of the backwoods and some of the less developed parts of uh, parts of the state. So mm-hmm. interestingly, the only time the film ever really goes into depth explaining why big land speculators might have been so eager to expand into the deep south, um, they never do it explicitly. But, you know, at one point, Davy Crockett goes to visit uh, Jackson at his plantation and you see, you know, there are a couple uh slaves helping enslaved individuals uh helping around helping crockett get off his horse and everything and they do completely elide the fact that you know these land speculators were so eager to steal a creek and uh cherokee land and other land from as they would put it the civilized tribes in the south because they were uh planners right who wanted to expand their cotton fields and that sort of thing and that's where the land was in the south and though the film never really gets into the class angle i think you can talk about kind of the resent that might have existed between the hill folk and the um planners for that very reason sure um but yeah no um yeah the Everyone, like, and not to erase the race angle on this, but there is the class angle. Folks forget that the uh, folks who lived in the mountains, who derided as hillbillies and rednecks, were never really strong political allies of the slave owners, right? They never really, they weren't 
even by the standards of the time, very politically or socially progressive. They were not consistent abolitionists, but they resented the planters for monopolizing the political and social and economic power in the South at the time. And this, in a lot of ways, boiled over in the Civil War when you saw a lot of partisan infighting in East Tennessee. You saw West Virginia literally counter secede from Virginia back into the Union. And so, yeah, that's just one element that I think people forget sometimes when they talk about kind of like the sociological history of the South in a lot of ways. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, the other <clears throat> angle that I wanted to take at this just briefly because I thought about it and I was like, oh, hey, this might actually be a contribution from my end. <laughs> um, so specifically the, the portrayal of the Alamo at the end. Mm -hmm. um, it was jarring to me in, in as much as you're watching all of these men fighting you know, past the point where it makes any sense to still be fighting. Davy Crockett dies yeah. at the end in the Alamo, you know, because, you know, they all did. And so immediately we don't actually see the killing blow that gets Davy. He's swinging his his rifle and doing all of his heroic things. And it kind of fades to black and then happy music plays. Mm -hmm. And so that struck me. And I, I texted you about it as much because I was like, this is a really weird framing for a bunch of dudes dying. And while I, I, I understand, you know, uh, that it was it was more so about like the goal, not just the thing in and of itself. The, I feel like the reason it was jarring to me is because especially for my lifetime, you know, 90s forward, our portrayals of war and our viewing of armed conflict has changed substantially, especially in how we depict it in cinema. Um, from, you know, kind of that 1950s, we still have lots of people who remember by war bonds, World War II kind of stuff. We hadn't experienced the anti-war stuff from like Vietnam yet. And so, you know, I just it felt very strange to me to see this glimpse of like, you know, oh, this is how people felt mm -hmm. about this stuff. And you know the really kind of depressing thing when you think of why they might not why they might not have actually portrayed Davy Crockett's death because if you do that in a um, in a an all historically accurate way the consensus seems to be that Davy Crockett was not killed in the fighting itself but at the very end of the battle they took several prisoners the Mexican army including Davy Crockett and Santa Ana ordered all of the prisoners to just be summarily executed, right? And that's part of the reason why um, the Alamo was galvanized as kind of like this uh, big rallying cry for um, Texans and then eventually the country at a large. You know, remember the Alamo is a phrase that, you know, everyone of a certain age, I think, knows. Remember the Alamo. Yeah. Um, no, the... So, yeah, it, it's interesting. Um, yeah, the depiction of the Alamo is for the standards of what essentially was television in 19, the 1950s, which was then put on to like film to be fair, it was actually a pretty sophisticated and well choreographed battle scene actually. Yeah, no, it was not, <clears throat> I'm not knocking it in any way for that whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Um, it was just, it was really jarring for me going from like, you know, again, so I, I'm used to, what is it? Uh, the, Hurt Locker, mm -hmm. uh, Saving Private Ryan, you know, th these are not positive depictions of war. Right. We've come a lot more around to this cerebral understanding that war, no matter the outcome, is itself an inherent evil. Right. And, and so like seeing it, you know, kind of the glory, glory, hallelujah kind of thing was just like, like I said, it was just, it's really unsettling in a way that's hard to describe because it's not scary. Like there's a monster or ooga booga or anything like that, but it's just like, you know, you can really see the teeth of the military industrial complex kind of starting to form and uh, get a grip in mainstream America. I think one of the H-bombs was literally called Davy Crockett. In the oh, 50s, sweet Christ. Which is awesome. But yeah, no, um, I and another element is and I, and I told, you know, I, I texted you back and I said, well, you know, the the last stand trope is pretty common in film. You have Braveheart, you have um, 300, all those sorts of films where the protagonists ultimately die at the end, but they t die toward the end of a higher cause. But the thing is, given that America has been such a dominant power for a long time, we very rarely see America in that or Americans in that position. Right. Of, well, I would also just posit that, you know, again, so in 300 or in uh, what was the other one you said? Braveheart. Braveheart. Yeah. It's not that happens and then happy music and everybody's good and golden, right? Mm -hmm. Like that happens and everybody's like, oh, 
shit. You know what I mean? And so mm-hmm. it's just, that's, it just, it, it, like, I'm dividing by zero over here watching the end of Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier. Uh, yeah. And I, again, this is probably just an insurmountable thing based on, you know, the different, um, implicit values that people are bringing into this sure, film. Sure, 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 That sort of thing. Um, but yeah, no. Um, Anyway, I, I took a bunch of notes and I just wanted to get through my thoughts and I yeah, sure, got sure. them. Um, do you have any other thoughts that didn't organically come up? Um, I mean, besides the fact that um, gr- the the bit, there were some bits of it that were actually kind of pretty amusing to watch, like him talking about grinning a bear to death. <laughs> um, that, that was very humorous. And uh, the weird... <laughs> can we talk? the scene do where it. the other guy um davy's partner saves his life mm-hmm. and so then they get back to the thing and he just kisses davy's wife on the mouth yeah and she's like wait what's that for and he says i saved davy's life and then she's like <laughs> oh come here and they're like about it uh yeah no uh as you put it he's a uh uh ethical uh non-monogamous king he yeah. he was centuries ahead sexually of where he should have been. And like, that is a secure man right there to bring your best friend home and say, you need to kiss my wife in front of me. And then I'm going to kiss my wife in front of you. It's a shorthand way of kind of showing how much more progressive Davy Crockett was on the, than the rest of the country on a lot of other things, you know? Yeah. Um, and we can have this discussion at the end of the podcast because I'm not sure if I'll keep any of it, but it's something that I've, you know, kind of struggled with as someone, uh, you know, from the area. I grew up, and again, so the it is it is a slur to refer to a person as such, but I grew up reading in books and seeing Davy Crockett's hat referred to as a, and I quote, coonskin hat. And it was specifically speaking, you know, again, you, you hunt a raccoon, right. you skin it and you make the, you make the cap out of the, out of the skin. And so is it like, is, is that problematic to um, talk about like a cap with that? Here's the thing. I think people of a certain generation would know what you're talking about, but I don't think the zoomers are going out and watching uh, this movie, sad to say, I I think people should watch this movie. It's actually pretty. It's good. not bad. It's 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 good, and it's kind of an interesting time capsule for how people in the middle of the 20th century were reckoning with the history of America and manifest destiny and that sort of thing. But regardless, they aren't doing that. So um, yeah, uh, fair enough. Uh, I don't. And again, outside of certain parts of Appalachia. Davy Crockett, I don't think, has been a folk figure, a folk figure, a folk hero in the country for a while. So I, I, I probably using the term will is will lead to a conversation that that's unnecessary just and just doesn't. Have. Yeah, I don't know. It's just it's one of those things where it's like I've heard like I've heard a discourse before where someone said it and then another person was like, whoa, you can't say that. And the person was like, it's literally just what it's called. And so that's just, it's an interesting, like, cultural intersection in that way. I'm sure that if you look into the history of why, it, like, the, the cap itself, and, like, you know, I'm sure there's some type of problematic, larger standing thing there. But it's just, it's something that I've run into a couple times as an Appalachian abroad. Mm-hmm. And uh, not abroad, like, literally in Europe, but, like, anywhere that people wouldn't, like, culturally be able to whistle along to Born on a Mountaintop, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it is what it is. And I very well might edit that out, but... Uh, I was just curious. So yeah, Davy Crockett and the King of the Wild Frontier, and uh, Davy Crockett and the King, like they're two separate characters. <laughs> I don't know why I said that. Um, um, can uh, can I make a really like the lowest hanging of fruit jokes about Davy Crockett? I would be disappointed in you if you did not. Davy Crockett, more like Davy Cockett. I, okay, maybe I am disappointed in you because I, <laughs> I, it was pretty disappointing. But it's it's there. It is there. Yeah. Um, um, it's not funny, but it's there. Um, mm-hmm. And that's my slogan. Hi, to, I'm Jeff Upshaw. To to, to quote Meatwad, I get it. It ain't making me laugh, but I get it. <laughs> um, and you know, w- when when we come out with merch, when we get a uh, daily brain bleed merch, we are going to actually get the rights from Aqua Team Hunger Force to put that. <laughs> On our shirts, it's going to be the Daily Brain Bleed, and then on the back, I get it. <laughs> it ain't making me laugh, you know, but I get it. They were they announced that they're doing another Aqua Teen Hunger Force movie, and 
that is something I'm going to be there on midnight, you know, seeing uh, that in the Squidbillies movie. Oh, and I don't know. No, 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 no. That's that's shame. That's shame. That's that's something you watch by yourself at 3 a.m. And when your mom comes in and says, are you watching Squidbillies? You say, no, it's porn. <laughs> no, mom. Anything but Squidbillies. Yeah, you'll get kicked out of your house faster for watching Squidbillies. Yeah. Um, um, anyways. Dark memories, listeners. Dark look, memories. we've all we've all had times in our lives. Um, Some people put on Marvin's room. I put on Squidbillies. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because I know the exact feeling you're talking about with putting on Marvin's room. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's not important. Don't call her back. Um, anyways. No, do call her back. Anyone listening to this uh, pod, here's your homework for this week. Call her back or call him back where it's, where it applies. No, you know what? The, 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 the message for this week is text your ex. <laughs> yes. Text your ex, but only send them a link to the YouTube lyric video for born on a mountaintop in Tennessee. <laughs> I can't go further because, again, we're not getting, trying to get DMCA'd. I, I don't want to get DMCA'd for yeah. singing. Is that? No, it's not public domain yet. It's uh, yeah, I, No, I'm pretty sure Disney just came up with the song. Yeah. It feels like something that should be like. It's like older than deep, time. Legitimate. It's like, you know, one of these. It's like New York, like New York, New York, his song that was only come up with in the 70s. But well, it feels like. So something that's occurring to me now, you can almost view this as a Greek style narrative with a chorus. Mm-hmm. Because every time between stuff that happens, you have this whole choir of men singing about like. Davy, Davy Crockett going home to kiss his wife. And they, they like narrate what happened yes. in like, you know, it's it's uh, almost Greek in yes. a way. Yes. And, and audiences who wouldn't get that today. Um, you're the outlier because this is how people did shit for thousands of years. They had their plays. You're the some, weirdo. Yeah. Someone else was to the side singing or in Shakespeare doing a soliloquy or whatever. Right. You need to get with literally, literally all of your ancestors. Uh, we we constantly say it on the pod, but return to tradition and accept Davy Crockett. I don't know. <laughs> Get a Ouija board, talk <laughs> to Davy Crockett, and ask him, you know, about the Alamo. Yeah. It, I'm not saying that you shouldn't contact the spirit of Davy Crockett. That's yes. all I'm getting at. Yes. Um, this has been a a very daily brain bleed episode of the Daily Brain Bleed. That's all mm-hmm. I can come up with for that. Um. Uh, My name's Tucker. My name's Jeff. Have a good Davy Crockett.